Welcome to the Molding Health Show. Our goal is to leverage the wisdom and experience of our healthcare practitioners to set you on a path of self-discovery and healing. These insights, coupled with a multidisciplinary approach to each area of interest, should provide an invaluable resource to everyone looking for a better approach to health. Please note that this episode covers a mental health issue in, in rather explicit detail. If you or someone close to you recently experienced one of these conditions, this content may evoke unaddressed pain. Our intention is to inform and empower our audience, but this material is not a substitute for therapy. Please use your discretion with regards to accessing this or other material on the site that may be triggering or traumatic for you. And remember that the best strategy is to seek professional assistance for unresolved painful or traumatic experiences that you may have undergone. We have included a link in the show notes where you can be connected to one of these therapists. In this episode of the show, we speak to Dr. Jess Walker about shame from a counseling psychologist perspective. Dr. Jess Walker, welcome to the show. So we're so glad to have you on board and talking about shame from a counseling psychologist point of view. Thanks so much for doing this. Thank you for having me. I'm, I'm really looking forward to um, talking about this today. Yeah, I mean, uh, I mean, I, to- I told you, I mean, it's an interesting topic because it's not something that you kind of come across a lot. And, and, and also, I think for people that are not aware of, you know, the topic, you know, of shame, it's normally like a weird topic to say, well, why are you talking about that? Um, I was fortunate a few years ago, I came across Brene Brown and, you know, she sp- speaks a lot about it. And, you know, okay. so that was where my awareness kind of came up around it. But can you tell us what is shame and, you know, how does it relate to therapy? Sure. Um, I mean, I think you're right, as you say, it's, it's kind of a, can feel like a strange topic. But I think, I mean, shame is something that everyone will have experienced at some point. It's a universal emotion or set of emotions so kind of when we when we think about it um we kind of think of it as like a primary affect a primary emotion that we feel um it's one of those core emotions that, that sits below some of the others um and I suppose you know we actually experience it as a range of different feelings um but shame itself is something um quite often we get it confused with guilt so shame and guilt can feel quite similar that kind of excruciating you know when something really bad's happening you're like oh and you're kind of going inside yourself and you kind of feel really uncomfortable um that will be one of those emotions but guilt is something where we feel it's usually about something sort of external that we've done so I feel guilty that I did um you know I cheated in an exam Mm. for example um and that feeling that you get with that I did something bad um shame is much more it's, it's it's a much deeper felt emotion about ourselves so I cheated in the exam and that I am now I am a bad person so I'm disgusting it's that that sense of self so it's very different it's it's about how we view ourselves that internal situation or, or that we see other people viewing us in that way that I think other people see me as as disgusting as not good enough and so it's experienced really viscerally so we hold it within our within our bodies quite strongly and because it's such a painful awkward emotion it's one that we don't often talk about. We try and shy away from it. So you often find that um, within therapy, for example, people don't want to kind of discuss that. It feels too, too much. And and that's, I guess, why I got interested in it. It's something um, when I was training, I did my doctoral thesis on shame. It's my kind of my topic of choice. And in fact, one of my clients said to me the other day, I, I, I know that shame is is your thing, the thing you love, which is kind of a weird thing to say, but I guess mm-hmm. 
because I see it as so often so difficult to work with and, and I was noticing that therapists often talk around it but not about it and when we're not kind of working with it um, and I think there is a, a, there's a lot of um, research and information out there about it now but um, if we don't work with it effectively we're never going to get to the core of the issues so that's why I became interested in it and that's why I think it's so important that we really address shame. Yeah, I would say it's like not one of those cool topics to talk about. It's like, like, you know, I had a practitioner on talking about death as well. It's like not one of those things, you know, or disenfranchised mm-hmm. grief. You know, it's mm-hmm. not one of those things that, that you know, it's like cool, like, you know, dinner topic kind of things to, <laughs> <laughs> you know, to talk about. So people kind of, and, and I remember, uh, I mean, her name was Beanie Otter. She spoke about disenfranchised grief. And she said, you know, it's like even her friends or colleagues, like, can we not talk about this now? Yeah. <laughs> you know, it was just like a downer kind of topic. And I suppose it's the same with shame. You know, it's, um, you know, it's yeah. something firstly people want to talk about and and secondly maybe understand it you know yeah Yeah. but can I ask uh, Jess I mean in terms of time frame because that's the one thing I do know about practitioners you know it's all about time frame as well because I think everyone feels shame at some point you know like oh you know like why did I make that mistake again and then it kind of goes away but I'm assuming that when you talk about shame you're talking about it like in a prolonged time frame or or much more deeper Mm. is that how it works yeah, I mean, I guess what what you might be talking about that, and I think we we get sometimes confused because the, the guilt is the stuff that goes quickly. We can deal with that much better because it's so external to us. But I think that yeah, the shame sits quite deeply, and actually, um, quite often, like as you as you say, that kind of longer term is the deep shame is really can be really hard and time consuming to work with because you have to go really slowly. Um, someone who has has a lot of shame, so for example, excuse me, someone who's um experienced a lot of trauma um so early childhood trauma childhood abuse for example might you know it will have a deeply held sense of shame um and you know trying to transform that quickly is never going to happen because it takes a long time to learn how to kind of one talk about that sit with it feel it and feel okay with feeling it and not want to really you know do something to to get rid of that 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 um, leads to further pain and shame it can feel really hard and learning to trust the therapist to also work with that takes a long time and that's a bit of a dance sometimes between the two of you so it it, it does take an awfully long time I think to get to the point where you can really transform that and learn that the shame isn't really yours so it, it comes often from experiences that we've had um, and where something may, things may have been done to us but we hold that as that you know, I am the bad, I'm, I'm the bad thing here. So that's the kind of belief that we've internalised and trying to kind of get rid of that again and say, hand that back almost, actually, this is not me that's bad, bad things were done to me, is a really long process often. And, uh, you know, it involves having to learn to be kind to the self. And when you hold a lot of shame, even the thought of being kind to yourself is just, no, you can't go there. It, it's too much to bear. It feels really, really difficult. So, uh, yeah, it, um, we can be talking months, years sometimes to work through that stuff. Mm, yeah, that's a good point. I mean, I think it's easy for someone else to, you know, say that uh, or, you know, get over it or, or whatever that is. But but like you said, you know, once it's internalised and you going through that, it must be quite difficult to to get to the bottom of it. Mm. Um, 
and and even be aware of it so i mean I, i'm curious i mean it is later on in the brief but you know how would even someone be aware of it because i'm sure it's presenting in other ways like you know i'm not you know my relationships are not working out you know uh, or you know i'm struggling with my job or something like that um but do you find you i mean uh, people come to you or, or patients come to you speaking about shame not usually no um people never come saying i feel high levels of shame um mm -hmm. please help me um <laughs> simplifying um <laughs> maybe you know very rarely but uh, and people do know the feeling of shame often but yeah you will often i'll often have people come that will feel like i don't know why um you know i can't seem to stay in a relationship or you know i i don't know why i push everybody away from me or i you know i've i've feel really sad all of the time um I can't let anyone get close to me or um uh, I I don't know why I'm feeling the way I'm feeling about life at the moment I feel anxious about everything I feel really fearful it, it might be all kinds of things that are going on in their life at the moment but a lot of the time what you find is that there's things that have happened way back in the past where these things have started those seeds of shame have been planted and they've grown and they've grown um, and, you know, we don't necessarily know that that's where things have come from. We're just looking at, OK, why am I feeling like this in the here and now? And it, it, it's a, a conversation about, well, let's look at, you know, your life story. Where, where have these things started? Where are those feelings grown from? Um, and that can feel like quite a surprise. You know, someone thinks they're coming for one thing to therapy and they end up discovering, well, actually, there's, there's a lot more to it than that. Mm, yeah, yeah I, I suppose that's the um, that's the argument for seeing amazing people like yourself, you know, because I mean, we can't really figure it out. Mm. Um, and it's normally, you know, the underlying stuff that that is, um, you know, that is the issue. Um, I didn't ask this, but uh, I definitely want to use this, uh, you know, this thought pattern to ask the question. But what does a counseling psychologist do? Just for anyone that doesn't know, you know, what that is and, you know, why would someone see a, a psychologist in the first place? Um, I guess, you know, what, what it depends where you're working as to what we do. I, I suppose I can speak from my own experience and, and knowledge. of. Um, so maybe why you would see a psychologist as opposed to a psychotherapist. Um, I think we do lots of similar things. We kind of work with people with all kinds of levels of distress and difficulties. I guess from a counselling psychologist's perspective, what we tend to do is we we tend to work. So we we kind of um, train in lots of different types of therapy. So we have to kind of have understanding of of different ways of working with people, and that's based on kind of psychological theories and um, evidence. Um, and we tend to have our training in lots of different um, modalities and, and places. We might work in the NHS. We might work within charity sector. We might. Um, work with lots of different types of organisation um, so we get a broad understanding of like how um, problems present and how you might work with them so for example in my training I um, the first part of my training was looking at kind of how we work with someone relationally and psychodynamically so that's thinking about kind of those early unconscious experiences and how we relate to others because everything we do is in relation to other people. So kind of understanding people through their relationships, both out of the therapy room and within the therapy room. And then we also did training around cognitive behavioural therapy. So looking at that kind of more here and now stuff and how we might kind of uh, apply different coping strategies. Um, and then also sort of further training in different areas that we wanted to work on. So I do more work now around sort of um, 
compassion focused therapy so kind of thinking about how we use that kindness to the self within therapy or I use EMDR which is stands for eye movement desensitization reprocessing which is a, a way of kind of processing traumatic events or difficulties um, by using by kind of um, looking at the right and left brain and, and kind of triggering both of those to process things to get them into the long-term memory store so they're not so emotionally resonant um, so there's lots of I suppose that's a, the, the a psychologist kind of has an overarching view of, of things of therapy of understanding human experience and a way of bringing those together in, in clinical settings but we might also um, work with helping organizations to understand why people do certain things in certain ways or how they could improve their their business how they can be more trauma informed um how, those sorts of things Is that that's your question Mm, it does. <laughs> so, I mean, I, what I got out of that was like, obviously, a, you know, much more extensive range of, of like working and all, mm -hmm. like it seems a bit deeper as well, you know, yeah. uh, in terms of the uh, the modalities you mentioned, you know, mm -hmm. you know, we have covered, you know, CBT and psychodynamic um, and other modalities, you know, DBT was another one that uh, someone mentioned this week as well. Um, something else. Um, yeah. And in terms of shame, coming back to the topic, are there things that, you know, like, I mean, are there certain things that kind of trigger it? I, I know you said early childhood, you know, trauma as an example, but I'm assuming because, I mean, you know, when you look at most children, especially in a playground, I mean, they're happy, they're content and, and stuff like this. Shame is such a dark thing, though. You know, you would wonder, you know, where does that come in from? You know, um, one of the topics we were kind of discussing as well was, you know, the whole narcissistic parents. And so I'm assuming, you know, like lots of kind of abuse, whether that's verbal, you know, physical, does bring about that. But are there any other precursors to it? Um, oh, that's, a, that's a really big question because um, I guess it, there, there's no simple answer to that. Where does, where does shame come from? Because it's something that's layered you know you can have early experiences so for example if you don't have secure attachments to a parent you, you mentioned narcissistic parents there so somebody that's very um that either might see you as the the golden child so treats you like you're really special but then maybe drops you one day and you don't know why or someone that has never treated you as special they only because they only have space for themselves you know the ego takes over i am the, the great thing and you know my worldview is the only view there is there's very little space for you equally a child that um has been abused by a parent or is, is suffered abuse by other people in their life um you know it's very hard for a child to understand what's going on as an adult we can kind of we can understand okay someone might do bad things um and that's not my fault for example but as a child we have to see our caregivers as um as good as people that are going to take care of us we haven't got any choice to survive in the world we kind of need those parental figures so what ends up happening often is that well they must be good um so if they're good but they're, they're, these bad things are happening well the bad must exist in me I'm bad and that's where shame often stems from and not all of the time but you know from different experiences we've had but often that's where it's coming from so we internalize that as a sense of I'm disgusting I'm bad and that inner child, you know, that child then is still within us as an adult. So it's that inner child often that, that might be um, have a highly critical voice or might sort of remind that, that might there might be parts of the self that see themselves as worthless because that's protective. You know, if if I remind myself that I am worthless, I have to do everything I can to not 
let people see that or not let people get close to this this thing because they're going to discover I'm disgusting I'm unlovable I I'm I'm you know I'm a nobody um so I have to work really hard to defend from that all of the time in my life and that's kind of you know what I mean by layering that we do things in life that kind of meet those beliefs and kind of keep people away from us or you know I must have people close to me I have to feel loved in order to feel there's any goodness in me but oh my god they're going to discover I'm terrible so let's get rid of them now or you know it, it kind of is an ongoing inner dialogue that we have with ourselves mm, okay um you know, when you were speaking as well, I was thinking um, about timeframes. I'm mean, coming back to what I was asking earlier about timeframes, because I would think, and and other word that kind of is is springing to me at the moment is confidence. You know, like it's it's almost like you know, if you're full of shame, you're probably not as confident. You know, and I, and I think all of us, you know, when we go to go through these different you know settings, you know, like whether it's starting work or going to uni or anything like that, you know, you almost like feel that feeling of like worthlessness you know you're not sure if you should be here or mm. you can do this and and there's some some aspect to it but I'm not sure if it's as deep as you know, shame though but I'm just thinking like 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 adolescence you know like uh, mm-hmm. you know like I think when they go through that time they're going through all of these very feelings as well you know like uh, mm-hmm. you know confidence all of those things um do you find that you know from that perspective it has any correlation to shame or is it i mean it's just shame like a on a much deeper level and you know it has no bearing on that stuff um i think it does you know there's there's that's what you're talking about is maybe milder levels of shame if you've not had any experiences before or or you know really traumatic experiences for example you might feel that level of shame and your uh, adolescence is a time when you know there's a lot of that isn't there that mm. kind of learning about our identity who we are as a person and that that growth that happens and and there can be there's lots of things that can feel really shameful in in those times and um often we might have the resilience to work through that or to let go of that eventually but if we hold sort of deep levels of what we're talking about like toxic shame where it kind of sits really deeply held that's just going to layer on top and it's going to sort of feed into this belief well you know there we go I am I'm not good enough I'm I'm worthless um and so it sits within that if we've only if we've kind of got that just that um shallower level of shame it's probably something that we can kind of manage because as you say it's, it's kind of a normal emotion it's a universal emotion that we hold and it it doesn't have to get in the way all of the time we can work through it but yeah, if it's if there's some kind of deeper stuff going on there it kind of just adds to those layers mm, okay so once the person has it so i mean like irrespective of how that kind of came up um do you is there a certain way that you start working with them or is there, I mean, is there a certain way that you see in like that, you know, that working through their lives? I mean, as in, you know, so, so let's assume someone doesn't have therapy, like, you know, they don't meet someone uh, like yourself and can't work through those issues. Do you find that it like presents in, in different ways? Like, you know, like substance abuse comes up a lot, you know, trying to fit into a, to, to a crowd, all of those kind of things. Um, do you have any thoughts around that? Yeah, I mean, I think shame, because it sort of exists underneath lots of different problems, it might pop up in lots of different areas. So you, I, I think the first time I kind of came across it, I used to work in um, in the prison service. And then I, I was a researcher in that area for, in criminal justice for a while. And I was looking at some research around um, men in prison um, and their experiences of aggression um, and um 
one thing that came up was that there were kind of really high levels of shame actually sort of what it means to be masculine and, and masculinity within those kind of settings which are very male and how shame was kind of um leading some of that behavior so you know when we feel high levels of shame we might try to get rid of it through anger through aggression for example that kind of sits on top of it I feel shame because you know someone says something to you it hits that core belief and to respond to that I've got to get rid of that might be okay I've learned culturally that that aggression is a way to kind of get people get people out of the way or you know that I can get rid of that emotion in the moment I'm feeling really angry so I kind of let that out or, you know, people might end up then, you know, doing all sorts of things, committing crimes, doing, uh, you know, a, a person that's grown up in an environment where that's a way of kind of communicating with other people or um, feeling safe is to to express aggression. They might do those sorts of things. Um, other people might sort of hide themselves away um, because that, that shame is kind of this emotion that makes you want to hide. So they might become sort of really reclusive. They might sort of stay away from other people. They might kind of shrink into themselves. Other people you wouldn't even notice necessarily have high levels of shame. They look into the, to the world like they are. They're doing absolutely fine. But, you know, in private, they're really struggling with that sense of self. Um, and there's a lot of fear that exists there. So kind of fear is a, a predominant emotion that kind of sits alongside shame a lot of the time but that can be expressed in different ways whether we kind of fight we flight we have that fight flight freeze mm. you know whichever one people go into um you might see that a lot of the time okay i can kind of see that i mean there, there must have been interesting work as well you know working with you know people in the prison kind of setting because you know for for the large part that is kind of you know in societies like the the worst case scenario, you know, like you'll end up in prison kind of thing. And I think we were speaking to a practitioner out of New Zealand and worked in the prison setting as well, you know, said something similar, you know, about early childhood trauma and, you know, how it relates. And so, yeah, that must have been interesting. Did you quite enjoy that that experience? I, I did. I mean, is it a weird thing to say? I, I loved working <laughs> in these settings. I don't know. I mean, and I thought originally that was going to be my path would be to become a forensic psychologist I decided not to do that for many reasons but um I the experience of working within prisons was really uh, was really I think because it's like a different world um and it's very sort of enclosed so everything that happens there is just sort of happening within that that setting and I worked in um adult male prisons and then I worked with young offenders as a drugs worker so um two sort of quite different settings but I guess what was really it was really useful for me was kind of really getting to know the people behind the issues you know so often we hear things in the media about people you know about um criminals and they're you know we it's that kind of they're all bad and actually mm. no there's, there's a human and it doesn't justify that the things people have done but there's a human behind that there's a story behind that you'll usually find that there's been a really difficult upbringing for that person that they've been kind of left in a broken system and and got to the place that they have in life and you know when you connect with people on a human level you're kind of working to get through that shame because often you know that it can create a lot of shame that they, people have ended up in these situations um and actually if you see the person beyond that it gives them a chance to just recognize okay I'm not I'm not all bad. There, there is something else here. I am, you know. I, yes, I've done some things that maybe I, I regret or have led to these situations. But there, there are reasons I've got here, and you know, things that have happened to me 
haven't you know happened not because of my fault but because of other people and you know we have this intergenerational trauma that goes through you know years and years and years and generations of people impacting on others um and that's what we end up with you know people that end up in these really really sad situations mm. i love it as you said that that's actually you know quite deep and profound and uh it just shows you like you know like it's so so easy to you know stereotype and and mm. you know, just make your own judgments um but I, i'm not sh- i'm not sure if you you watch series a lot i mean uh or, you know there was a series called ozarks you know with jason bateman i'm not sure if you ever watched that but you know in the movie i mean they, they become like they like money launderers for you know drug dealers and um but his wife says because that's quite a you know hard world and yeah. his wife says you know in life there's not like a you know, clear part saying here's the right part and here's the wrong part. And so you make these decisions, you know, through life and sometimes, you know, it ends up on the wrong path. Um, but yeah, when you were talking about the prison setting, I was thinking, you know, something on those lines. Um, yeah, absolutely. The, the word vulnerability also comes up with shame. Mm. You know, like I think Brene Brown, that's where I heard it as well, where mm. she said, you know, like when, you know, the one thing about, you know, you know, working with shame and working, you know, on a deeper level is you get down to that vulnerability. And if you mm-hmm. can get to that space, you know, therapists know this a lot, is if you can get to that space where it's raw emotions, you can work with that and get it, get yourself mm-hmm. better. Is there mm-hmm. any thoughts that you have around that? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I mean, Brownie Brown's brilliant at explaining all of these things. And I'd highly recommend, you know, people listen to her because she's, she talks really well about these subjects. And, um, you know, vulnerability is, is so important learning that there is strength and vulnerability is something I guess that we do within therapy or I, I see as really important um because often we see that as a weakness and it's you know you know thinking about the people we we're just talking about in prison that it can feel like you know to let it uh, to have a chink in your armor is showing weakness to cry is showing weakness to show that I'm hurt is showing weakness is you know to, to show I'm vulnerable I can't do that and also you know that's something that yeah to to be able to even acknowledge that you hold deep levels of shame you have to be vulnerable to do that you know you have to show your vulnerability so I guess the therapeutic space often allows people to do that because it's somewhere separate from everything else in their life you know they know when they come into the therapy room that's not going anywhere else that's not you know their their family their friends aren't going to know that this is what who they really are but even you know that doesn't mean that it's easy necessarily to 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 show that in therapy but it's really important to work with someone to to um help them learn to to trust in you enough that they can show that vulnerability that they can go this is what I'm really feeling but it's also really terrifying because sometimes with the deep levels of shame comes um you know some of those really difficult emotions so sometimes it can feel really really traumatic to kind of go into that shame to talk about that stuff um and that can lead to kinds of problems but for example when you're working through that in therapy you might have people that are prone to dissociating from their experience they're kind of shutting off from themselves going into themselves because it's too much to bear so the, the skill of the therapist is to kind of help somebody work through that to allow them to be vulnerable but just within their window of tolerance whatever that is so working really gently to help them explore their inner experience and to start to transform that and to see themselves with a bit more kindness but you have to do that in a way that they can tolerate that and the more that they can tolerate that 
the greater their their ability to be vulnerable and to know that that is is a strength and to then start taking that out into the world and practicing doing that in the world and allowing people to see that because the thing about shame is that it's so hidden it's so secret that we don't want people to know about it but the thing that that gets rid of shame is the talking about it is the letting people know and realizing oh not being judged for that um and that's that's the transformational stuff there but you have to kind of go really slowly to get to that point and that's that's the problem it's like i want to hide this stuff the only way to get through it is to let it out Mm -hmm. so there's a push-pull there all of the time Okay. I'm quite curious about this because, uh, I mean, that's a, that's an interesting way of, you know, like how you explain that. So if someone comes for therapy and obviously you're going through this and disassociative and you kind of, you know, like they, they're coming out of that shell and, and, you know, I think psychologists use the word contained, you know, like you can't let someone uncontained go out of your therapy session, but you got this and it's really raw. And now the next therapy session is in a week's time how does how does that work i mean how, how does how, how do you kind of put that person back together so that they can actually go back in their normal life and carry on going uh you know with knowing that or is it like a phased approach i mean i'm just curious yeah. how it works um, i mean that's a really good question because you can't necessarily always put someone back together and in, mm. in part of therapy is is almost taking people apart a little bit um because we have I guess if you think about it, we have different parts of the self. And that's often the work that we do is kind of looking at the different parts. And sometimes those have become blended together. So the part that feels high shame is often the part that takes over for somebody. And we want to disentangle those parts of the self and see them as separate. So I am not shame. Shame is a part of me. I have these other parts too. Um, but often that's like sitting centrally. So, you know, working with that, you're, you're bringing that out, and particularly at the, you know, those, those beginning early, early days of therapy, that can be really prevalent. So it's really hard to always send somebody out neatly packaged back into the world, come back next week, you know, you'll be fine in between. I guess what I tend to do is um, when you're thinking about sort of deep levels of toxic shame is you might work really slowly towards working with that. You, you need to make sure that somebody's got enough resources to kind of know how to look after themselves. So I think that's a really nice description within um, compassion focused therapy that I use quite often about the different systems that we we exist within. So we have, from that perspective, we have three different systems. We have a drive system, we have a threat system, and we have a soothing system. So the drive system is the system that we use when we're kind of like doing our work, going about in the world, getting things done, um, and people are, you know, quite a lot of people are really good at using that system. Um, sometimes we might overuse it. Some people, sometimes when we're feeling difficult stuff, we go back into drive because it means I, don't, I can distract from that stuff that's hurting me. Um, we have a threat system. So this is this sort of old brain system, if you like. Um, so if you think about humans way back when, you know, we might need that system quite a lot. If you're, say, you know, out on the plains and there's a predator, you need to be aware that system needs to be on. Um, you know, you need to be scanning for threat. You need to be hyper vigilant to the world around you. And if there is a threat, you need to do something. So that's why we have those, you know, fight, flight, freeze mechanisms. Mm. I can play dead, I can run away, or I can fight. Um, and those back then would have been really useful. Sometimes now they're still useful, but we tend to overuse that system. So we get stuck in threat. And if you can think about like imagining there's a predator, what, what needs to happen is all the senses need to shut down and just focus on this is the, I've got to get out of this. 
so your system is flooded with all of this this information like right I need to get out of this um and when we're flooded like that we can only think about that one thing so you know someone with high shame will often be in that threat system a lot of the time which is a really dangerous place to be and it's really exhausting for the body mm. and the mind to be stuck in that um and what you often find is that people um don't really use their soothing system so that's really underactive so the soothing system is the one we use when we're at rest when we're calm it's the system where we can just go okay you know everything's at peace I'm all right if you think about like a a small child if they um are running around and they fall over and hurt themselves if they have a you know a loving parent or someone will come up to them be like it's okay you know you're going to be okay come have a cuddle that's a way we learn to feel soothed okay this is okay or you know when we feel really sad as a child oh it's okay I can understand that you feel sad because so and so stole your toy um but you know just it it will feel better in a minute and 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 it's not okay to steal toys but we'll talk to them about it and you know you can feel sad that's okay we learn what an emotion is what it looks like how we deal with it that it's okay to express those emotions that it's understandable um so we learn that emotional literacy but we also learn how to soothe so we can do that for ourselves as an adult quite often we haven't learned that stuff or people who've had kind of abusive past might not have learned those things and they don't use that system um, very often. So we don't know how to soothe ourselves. So someone who with a good soothing system can see when they're starting to feel a bit threatened. I can do something. I can, you know, even just taking some deep breaths, really kind of using that system to slow myself down. I don't get into that high threat place, so I'm not completely shut down. And therefore, I can think about ways to kind of deal with this issue that I'm facing. Um but someone who goes into threat all the time really can't do that. So the work is to kind of build that soothing system a bit more, help people to kind of really do that. So kind of resourcing them through using that system, through recognising when they're starting to kind of feel threat a little bit rather than going straight into that high threat place. And that takes time. It's, that That is a real dance. So you're kind of having to figure out how to do that. And it's not always possible because someone with really high levels of shame might sort of um, – some people self-harm some people have like lots of suicidal ideation those things might happen quite a bit and when you're asking them to to think about these things that are really shameful that stuff's really prevalent as well and you know those they they might want to go to those places um but also helping them not feel shamed about those feelings that they hold and that you know not feel shamed about the fact that they want to self-harm because that's been a really effective coping strategy for them for a really long time you know that's that's kind of the work so yeah it's not it's not easy enough just to sort of package every session neatly obviously you try not to kind of um just leave someone really open at the end of the session and that that can be really hard and you have to sort of work slowly and particularly if you've got someone who dissociates you can't just sort of leave them in a dissociative state and say off you go now because that would be dangerous so kind of you need to have the time and space to work with that Mm. I love that response. It was phenomenal, actually. Um, you know, using your example of the of the child, um, and you know, like maybe tying on to a question we're going to cover, you know, a bit later. You know, in terms of what we can do, you know, to help people around us. But I was thinking about the child one, and you know, it could go the other way around. I mean, you said it really nicely. You said, you know, caring parents or caring, you know, loved one around you. Uh, but it could go the other way. And, you know, the parent says, but, you know, you're always falling over, you know, like, why can't, you know, you're clumsy and, you know, you, why why don't you ever get this right? And and that mm-hmm. leads to the shame part. Is is that something that would work? Yeah, 
Okay. Yeah. So we're internalizing those messages. We're always learning from from the people around us. So if you've got someone, I mean, and obviously people, <clears throat> parents might do that sometimes. You know, there's nothing wrong. We can't get it right all of the time. I don't want people to sort of feel like, oh gosh, I'm a terrible parent because I've, I've said those things sometimes. Um, but absolutely, you know, if you've got a parent that that um, that is never really responsive to your needs, is never like noticing what your emotions are and mirroring those or helping you through those difficult emotions or letting you see their emotions and how they manage those then it, then how do we learn you know where are we get, going to get that information from that one it's okay to have this emotion um and two this is how I can deal with it so for example someone who um has grown up in a house where there's been a lot of violence they might learn that okay when you feel angry or when you find something difficult the answer is violence because that's what I've learned around me. Um, if I'm feeling like I'm going to cry, that's really dangerous because that's when I get hit. Um, that's when I get told, to, you know, that that's not okay. That's not a response. So I have to like bury that. Where do where do I go with that emotion? You know, I have to I have to stop myself from crying. I have to not feel those things. So I'm going to have to numb myself from those experiences. I might even have to detach, and so I'm not really here. Um, in my mind because it's too dangerous to feel those things so you can see why then then they build up these responses to the world that absolutely fit the experience they're having and they are a way of coping and getting through and surviving you know these are survival mechanisms and they are totally appropriate in that time but they're not helpful um, for us kind of living a, a, a healthy life where we can we can feel okay and we can live without so much fear all of the time because when we're no longer in that fearful situation as an adult we're still responding to the world with those same coping strategies mm. yeah that's that's pretty powerful as well i want to go back to um because you you said some some really deep stuff you know around and I, and i think you know for people that don't like you know you haven't come across it before it's it's kind of like jarring because like the like i still don't get i mean you know the self-harm you know, like how, how does that because you said it's a it's a coping strategy it's soothing and in my mind you know cutting yourself you know i'm assuming that's what you mean with self-harm as well but you can tell me more ways you know patients normally do that but how does that actually tie into you know people feeling better around the shame aspects so when we when we feel something really strongly and we don't know what to do with it you know you might feel an emotion you've never learned how to sort of regulate your emotions to how to soothe yourself how to bring yourself down out of something in a way that feels calming um, um when you haven't learned what the you know those responses might be or how to go to somebody else or how to to comfort yourself you have this overwhelming sense of emotion so there might be sort of an overwhelming sense of shame or an overwhelming sense of fear or anger or self-loathing um so I feel like I am terrible and I, can't, I don't know what to do with this feeling. I don't know how to get out of it. I'm a horrible person. I'm stuck with this. Um, what um, self-harm often does is it kind of, it's almost grounding. So we talk about grounding as a way of, um, which we use to help someone who's in trauma to bring themselves back into their body, back to where they are. And we do that in ways that are kind of healthy ways that we might think about, you know, what, noticing the things that are around you or kind of, um, holding ice in your hands so you, you know you can really feel you're here in this moment um, self-harm I suppose offers something similar in that it's I feel this right now so if I cut myself right now I feel that pain um, and I can I can feel it in this moment in my body and you know 
so much emotion is stored within our body. So, you know, we use our bodies as a way of expressing emotions, way of dealing with emotion. And that kind of experience of cutting or hitting or whatever it might be that, that is a, an aspect of self-harm is a way of kind of bringing yourself back into that, but releasing that emotion. And people do it because it works really effectively for them. Um, mm. So, you know, some people will say, when I cut myself, it's just like an instant relief. I don't feel, you know, it gets rid of that, you know, switching the brain from one thing to another, not thinking about that and thinking about that. That's a, you know, it's a relief having that that sensation. Um, and you can see why then that becomes a really effective coping strategy for people. And it's a really normal coping strategy. I wouldn't, I'm not recommending it as a, mm. as a way of coping with the world that, you know, and we eventually want people to move away from that. But um, it is something that people do because it does work so well and so quickly to take them away from that inner experience in that moment. It doesn't deal with all of the, the problems that are going on. Um, and for some people, then, you know, it gets worse and worse to the point where, um, you know, they're self-harming in a really dangerous way. Um, so it's not, we're not promoting it, but I would never say to somebody, if they come in and that's their coping strategy, you've got to stop doing that because that wouldn't be helpful. What else have they got? If they haven't mm. got that, where do they go next? Mm. Um, and you don't want them to go to that next step. And you want them to have a way of coping whilst you're finding new, better ways of coping. And it's similarly, you know, addiction issues are mm. another way of kind of harming or numbing the self or, or moving away from that, you know, rather than that high feeling, it might be a total numbing of, of, of feeling. Yeah, I was just going to mention that as well, is because, uh, I mean, I see the, you know, maybe the cutting, I don't know what other ways they are. But, you know, like in movies I've seen, you know, the rubber band, you know, like people use the rubber band, you know, like, well, basically just harming yourself. But, um, uh, but you know, the external, that's more internal, you know, like no one can kind of see that and things like that. Uh, but the external would be, you know, like the drug, you know, substance abuse, you know, maybe promiscuity. I don't know if that falls in the same bucket, but, you know, doing things that actually harm and you know, it's like not probably not good for you, uh, but you just do it anyway. Mm -hmm. I do want to ask with the with the cutting part, is is it like is there a correlation between how bad you're feeling? So in terms of how much you want to harm yourself, I suppose is the question. You know, it's like if you're feeling really bad, then it's almost like you want to harm yourself more. You know, is there like a Yeah. Um absolutely. And you know, the higher the level of shame, the mm. more that you might feel like that. You know, if you imagine that you feel to yourself to be a really worthless person, you know when you feel that really really heightened then sorry my dog is sneezing in the background <laughs> <I didn't laughs> um, <hear that. laughs> when you when you feel that you know in a really heightened sense you want to get away from yourself so that shame is this experience like it's an overwhelming sense of emotion where it kind of takes over your whole body your whole mind so if you feel high levels of shame it's so excruciating that you kind of want to hide you want to get away you kind of want to run away from yourself you want to scratch your own eyes out you want to you know do anything you can to get away from that experience but because it's within you you can't get away so then that experience of like I deserve punishment I deserve pain I or I deserve not to be here anymore because I'm worthless and I'm never going to be anything but worthless that's the overwhelming thought so you can see why that might lead to sort of I need to do something to get rid of this feeling because I, I'm just overwhelmed by it completely at this moment Mm. I can kind of see that. I can see the numbing aspects to it. Um, 
I mean, uh, the reason I was asking about the severity, uh, I think it was a movie, The Da Vinci Code, but, you know, the guy was like self-flogging, you know, like, so he almost like, you know, like, like whoops himself. And, you know, like the more, the worse he felt in the movie, like the worst, you know, like the flogging was kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, which was interesting. But um, suicidal ideation, I mean, like, is that, is that, and, and I like the fact that it's ideation. I mean, it's more like it's thinking about suicide. It's obviously not do, you know, doing the suicide. But is there something soothing about the fact that you're thinking about suicide? Is that this, it's like a numbing effect as well? I'm not, I, I guess soothing. I, hmm, it's an interesting whether whether it's soothing or not. I don't know. That's a good question. Um, sometimes it feels like the the only option. Um, yeah. And suicidal ideation is very different from the act act yes. of deciding. You know, and and you know, um, suicide is something that I, I guess often feels quite a frightening topic to people. It's something I, I work with in suicide prevention, so it's something I'm quite familiar with. And I, and I have a lot of clients that experience suicidal ideation. Um, and, it you know, when you get to that point of total um, frustration or stuckness, and that doesn't necessarily just come from shame, it can come from other things as well. Like often people who might feel really guilty about something, for example, might feel that, or, you know, they feel really stuck in their situations. Um, might experience that, like say things around, you know, homelessness, mental health issues. Those can lead to, to feelings of like um, total overwhelm. Like I don't know what else to do. That, that isn't necessarily that they don't want to be alive anymore, but they don't want to feel these things anymore. They don't want to be stuck in this position anymore. They can't see any way out. I just want this feeling to stop. I don't want that anymore. Um, so it, the mind goes to that place because that's that's a way out from that feeling, and it feels like the only way out. You know, if I wasn't around, things would be better. You know, other people wouldn't have to put up with me. I wouldn't have to put up with me. Those sorts of things. Okay. Um, that makes sense. And um, the last one I had around that whole, you know, like what we were talking about just now is, uh, I liked how you said about detaching, you know, like so someone detaches. Uh, and, I'm in, and you're like, I'm interested. So when I think of that as well, it's like, you know, there is, um, you know, you get the, hmm, almost like the, the split personalities and obviously that that would be a you know very extreme case of that but how does mm-hmm. someone detach out of that it's almost like they're there but they're probably not there kind mm-hmm. of aspects so that's you know a, a bodily and um, mind response so when to something really awful happening so if someone's been subjected to a lot of trauma or abuse for example um a way to survive that is to not be in your body. So if someone is doing something to you um, um, and you cannot get away, what you can, what the, the mind can do is it almost takes itself out of the body. I'm no longer in this body. The body is is a vessel and I'm elsewhere because then I can survive this moment because it's too awful otherwise. If I'm having to sort of feel everything, I can numb from that. I can disappear into myself. And that's a, a survival mechanism. Like the mind is... A, and the body are a wonderful you know have a ways of coping with things you know often you know if you think about someone who's been in a really difficult car accident they might not remember the moment of the accident um if they survive it because the mind has kind of shut off from that um as a as a coping mechanism and that's the same sort of thing so when someone experiences like prolonged abuse they might learn to detach from themselves and so when we're working with them in the therapy room often the, the, the right brain the feeling part of the brain 
re-experiences trauma. So it re-experiences that feeling state as if it's happening in the here and now. So if you can imagine that someone's learned to detach um, when things feel really traumatic, when you're then bringing it back in the therapy room, that's where they go to. I'm going to, I've got to disappear off now because I'm unsafe in this moment. This is happening here and now. So what we're doing is helping them kind of connect the, the right brain, the feeling brain with the kind of thinking rational brain. Um, and, and when we can do that, we can kind of make it a more, this is a story, this is something that happened, but I'm not experiencing it now. I'm not feeling those things. It's not flooding my body. I can exist in my body and be safe right now and, and, and know that this stuff has happened. And then I can grieve that this stuff has happened and I can work through that stuff. So, um, you know, that's that's often what we're dealing with in those experiences. Mm. And And do they realize that they're detaching i mean like uh, i mean I'm, I'm assuming no and uh, i suppose the other question would be do others around them know that they're detaching in that moment um sometimes people do sometimes people don't i think um probably not when it's initially happening but you know over time you can learn like sometimes when i'm working with clients who <clears throat> who do do that they kind of they start to know their signs and they can tell me when they can start to feel themselves going and we can so we can work to bring them back before they've gone too far or I can notice the signs but yeah absolutely not necessarily in life that people have blackouts I don't mm. know what happened between this time and that time I wasn't really in my body I don't know what was happening um and that can feel quite frightening when when you don't know where you've gone to or um you know I can I look in the, the mirror and I don't see me I don't see anybody there that's really frightening not knowing why you're experiencing that or where you've gone but that's that sort of heightened level of fear is, is being experienced at that time. So they're kind of detaching from, from that rea reality. Um, and I suppose another kind of similarish experience is not detachment so much, but or the dissociation, but of, you know, you might have someone who, for example, hears voices. Um, and that is a really normal experience of coping with awful things that have happened to protect you from something. So, you know, instead of disappearing into yourself, you have voices that are kind of telling you things that are trying to keep you safe but doing that in a really traumatic way um and that can be another way that you experience kind of some of that that the shame and the difficulty from from things that have happened well that's that's quite deep i mean when you're talking about that i'm thinking like schizophrenia but it's not mm -hmm. quite schizophrenia but like just hearing voices schizophrenia i guess is a label i mean i tend to okay. obviously i work with um we all work with labels, don't we? Some people come <laughs> in and say, I have depression, I have OCD, I have um, I've been diagnosed with schizophrenia. Um, there's a really interesting sort of school of thought thinking about things from a trauma perspective. So um, there's a really good uh, website and lots of podcasts and, and TED Talks around um, if you look up a disorder for everyone. They talk. There's, there's a, some psychologists, psychotherapists that talk about um moving away from those labels of disorder and thinking about it from a trauma perspective and absolutely you know yes what we label as schizophrenia is actually a, a really healthy in the moment response to trauma um and sometimes when you get given those labels that can in itself feel re-traumatizing and really scary okay i've got this label i'm gonna have this thing forever and that means that, that i'm totally i'm totally mad and you know people you know, someone else knows you've got that diagnosis. Well, okay, you're going to be one of those knife wielding maniacs, as the paper mm. might put it, or whatever. You know, those really unhelpful labels are, and and that kind of then impacts on that person's sense of identity and those levels of shame because you're, you know, that that is quite a shameful label for a lot of people. When you think about it, like, um, 
you know, you hearing voices is is a really understandable response to some of the stuff that's happened to you because those voices they might be saying you can't go outside, you're going to get someone's going to kill you if you leave your front door, you know, you don't deserve to be here. What they're trying to do to you is say, I'm feeling fear and everything in the world is dangerous, so don't go out there because something bad is going to happen to you. That's that part of you trying to say, you know, the world is terrifying, you need to stay safe but it's doing it in a way that really hurts. So, you know, learning to, to converse with those voices and work with them rather than against them is perhaps a much less traumatising way of understanding those experiences and much less shameful. You know, we're not layering on more shame when we're thinking about it in that way. Mm-hmm. That's phenomenal. I never thought of it like that, actually. Um, but it makes complete sense. Because um, can one assume that, I mean, whatever the mind is showing you, I mean, even though it seems like traumatic, it's probably doing it to protect you in some way, but it's doing yeah. it really, because it probably just like with therapists, I mean, they have your best interest at heart, your mind has only yeah. your best interest at heart, it's not trying to yeah. threaten or harm you, it's trying to yeah. protect and keep you safe. Yeah, absolutely. And it does that in very strange ways. And it, you know, when you're the person experiencing that, that's utterly terrifying. Um, so we have to find ways to kind of communicate with those parts of the self that are terrifying the other parts and really understand why they're doing that and, and kind of learn to work with that and learn to soothe ourselves, learn to be compassionate with those parts of the self and, and bring them in and, and soothe those parts rather than um, kind of trying to push them away all of the time. Mm, okay, that's, that's pretty interesting. Um, I learned something yeah, phenomenal today <laughs> uh, because uh, I never thought of it like that, but it actually makes you know complete sense that it's happening and it's almost like embracing it rather than trying to fight it, which is what seems to be, you know, if you watch like the movies like, you know, Beautiful Mind and, and stuff like that, you, you, know, you take the medication to suppress it uh, mm-hmm. and stuff like that. And there's probably a place for that. But, um, um, and just tell me, so someone l- listened to this and said, you know, <laughs> I didn't even know this was happening to me, but, you know, this kind of is resonating. How would they seek help around the topic of shame or, or anything associated with what we spoke about so far? Um. I guess, you know, going to see somebody or, you know, you can, there's there's lots of, I suppose, information you could look up, um, different um, books you could read around the topic. But I guess probably the best thing is to to try and talk to somebody if possible. Like if you're feeling that some of that stuff resonates, it, you know, if you feel you can, um, then contacting a therapist to talk to them about this is the stuff that I'm feeling that I'm noticing about myself. But these are the thoughts I'm having might be really helpful but I mean certainly there are resources out there so I think I mentioned like the disorder for everyone is a really great website I think they'll be building at the moment so um but there's lots of links on there to some of the TED talks around like hearing voices or you know working with trauma um that can be really useful for people to kind of understand their own experience in a different way um there's a a book uh, I think you've probably heard of Bessel van der Kolk um he said he's a he's a psychiatrist but he writes in a really um open way that that um it's quite he talked there's a book called the body keeps the score and he talks mm. about trauma in the body um and how we experience that because that you know we we need to work with the body as much as we work the, with the mind because it's so essential um and he talks about those experiences how that is experienced in the body or how you can work through that and that's um for for people who've had those experiences it's a quite a useful read too um or people might want to read up on things like around attachments and, and how they 
you know, different attachment styles because that helps get an understanding of where some of this stuff might come from. You might recognize some of the ways that you have related to your parents and how that might be impacting on your life and relationships, and that can be helpful. Mm, yeah, uh, you're the third therapist probably in the, in the last week and a, and a bit that's mentioned that book, The Body Keeps More. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> for anyone listening, you better go get the book because, mm-hmm. yeah, it's obviously a very highly recommended you know, book. I have, it's on my list as well. Uh, I definitely okay. want to go through it. Um, and I, I like asking this question, you know, I started adding it to the brief, you know, like quite, quite some time ago, but as a loved one or someone, um, you know, that's, and you see someone struggling with this, you know, obviously you can't put a label to it, but, you know, something resonates about the story in some fashion. How can, how can we support that person better? And I probably want to ask it in two ways. One is because I love what you said about compassion, because I think, you know, compassion and empathy, you know, if, if people had that, you know, I think it would solve lots of the issues mm. in the world. But when you, you know, like as a, as a, as a parent, you know, bringing up children as, as a, as a person living in a community and, and all of that stuff, is there things that we could be doing to minimize, you know, what we do? And secondly, uh, if you do see someone, you know, that's struggling, whether that's a loved one, um, or someone in your family, is there anything that we could be doing better? Um, that's, it's tricky, um, I guess, because the, the problem with, with shame is that often when someone has high shame, the kinder we are to them, the more they want to run away from that. And I'm not saying don't be kind. I mean, we, that, that still applies, you know, treating someone with kindness, with understanding, you know, hearing their story, asking them, how are you? You know, what are you experiencing? What's going on for you? Or, you know, I, I want to help you um, feel better or, or I just want to be here to, to, to listen to you if you would like that. Um, can be really helpful but often people will find that really difficult to talk about their experiences if they're, if they're kind of um often they might kind of push that away or feel really angry with you for asking those things but being consistent being there and um, just being alongside somebody can be really helpful like I'm I'm here to listen to you I'm, I'm not going to judge you whatever you know you've experienced or has happened to you I'm I, I, I don't I'm not judging um, those things that have happened or we can also share our own things that we feel shameful about um, and sometimes that can be really useful because it can feel really disempowering when we feel shame. So if you have something like oh, this is something that, that I feel awful about or like really gets to me, can feel like, OK, I'm not the only one, you know, and that can feel really nice and really reassuring or connecting them with other stories of people who've had those experiences or of, if you know things that have happened in their past, you know, knowing other people have experienced that and that they have similar feelings can be really helpful in realising, OK, this isn't this isn't just me maybe I'm not so terrible maybe I'm not the bad seed mm, yeah um, I think there's also something to be said about you know people are, will will hear it or listen you know when they want to as well so I think mm. I think maybe being persistent sometimes or well, not too yeah. persistent but you know, that yeah that's fine maybe um and uh, I don't know if we covered this in as detail as much detail as we probably should, but typical treatment. So assuming that you know someone's watched the TED talks and you know read the books, but they still think that they need professional help and someone like yourself, Jess. But uh, what would a typical treatment? And, and again, I mean disclaimer: there's no cookie cutter approach. So I get that. Yeah. But typical treatment for someone that's struggling with shame. Um, I guess yeah, it might depend on what they're 
how they're coping with that. So, for example, someone who is um, has become addicted to substances, you might treat very differently because you'd need to sort of work with that alongside the shame because the, that's kind of masking a lot of the shame. And when you kind of lower that, the shame comes out more. Um, so you might want to kind of work at, at dealing with the addiction first off. Um, but I guess other people, you know, when when we're dealing with shame and there's been lots of levels of abuse, I think you'd want some sort of long term therapy. I tend to I work in an integrative way, so I tend to use lots of different models. Quite often, I use EMDR to process some of those high shame moments, the traumatic stuff. But we have to do some work to get to that first. So kind of building up a sense of self, building up a sense of the resources that you might need to learn to soothe yourself, building trust in the relationship looking at those early experiences where things come from um, and finding ways to just bring in little bits of compassion within that so sometimes we use like yeah, EMDR to, to process things sometimes we kind of think about imagery rescripting so you know for example you might have a situation which has felt really frightening where the, say, say a client remembers a time um, when they were a child where their parent was really angry with them was shouting at them you can kind of almost go into that image and ask them to go in and either they can kind of take control of that in a different way and come in as an adult and take care of that child or they can change that child so grow that child like physically and and stature in their memory and and shrink the adult or work with those in different ways or put them somewhere and then talk to them differently or you they can allow you to come in if that feels too much I mean in early days of working with high shame that can feel too much sometimes even to learn to be kind to that person you can work with those images in ways where you can you know you as the therapist can almost sort of reparent them and come into those images and and and, um say that you know this is not acceptable talking to your child in that way is not okay I'm going to take the child away now you need to leave the room those sorts of things can be really powerful to just reduce the potency of some of those things so there's ways that we kind of work with those traumatic memories in order to make them feel um, less powerful and that's kind of some of the work that we might do and then really kind of building on that that sense of how are you kind how can you be kind to yourself often the way we talk about other people we're so much more compassionate than the way we talk about ourselves that highly critical voice like would you really you know would you say those things would you say to your friends you're absolutely useless why the hell did you do that you stupid person you shouldn't be alive you know we'd never say those things to somebody else and yet quite readily and freely we do that to ourselves so it's learning that you know actually being kind keeps us safe not being critical um but that's that's sort of a, a, a long process of doing that so I guess there isn't an easy answer like what one size fits all but there are there are certainly types of therapies that that kind of really get to grips with some of that traumatic stuff and working with that shame but you have to also be able to withstand that in the room so you, you need to have a therapist that really kind of gets shame and gets how it's experienced because it can also feel as someone's got high levels of shame and they're totally stuck and they don't know what to do there and they feel like really trapped you kind of experience that feeling they're giving that to you and sometimes you can feel like oh my gosh I don't know what I can do do with this I don't know where I can go and then you feel like oh I'm stuck and and so you need to be able to withhold that and go okay what's going on here I'm really feeling this at the moment wonder if that's how you're feeling and and then you can work with that um so you've got to be really open to your own experiences as well as theirs and another thing I guess that's really important is working bodily and I think we're getting better at understanding that so kind of somatic experiences how we kind of experience trauma shame in the body 
um because if we're not working with the body we're only kind of working with with the mind we're not sort of getting rid of where that sits so we need to kind of process through that work through that stuff um so you might use things like um breathing techniques yoga methods so I use bits of yoga sometimes in, in my practice of working with that body moving things out of the body um finding ways of getting up and moving around the room um sometimes some of my clients think I do some really strange things with them and they're kind of marching around the room or whatever because it's a way of really just trying to find the ways that that, that move or change that bodily experience so they're not stuck in it um, and kind of learning just how to breathe is so so important like how to breathe in a way that kind of soothes us rather than stresses us so I think having um or knowing where to send them to do some of those things that, that they can do outside of the therapy room that helps kind of release some of that trauma can be really helpful too mm. so for anyone listening you have been warned you're not going to just sit on the couch <laughs> 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 away from Dr Walker <laughs> that's funny um yeah. Do, do you have an idea as to why we why we so it's so easy for us to be so self-critical and because we all do it. But mm-hmm. you know, what I'm thinking in my mind, you, you know, when you take someone for granted or something for granted, it's so easy to, you know, like treat that person or that that thing badly. And mm-hmm. I'm wondering if this is the same thing with us as you know, like our, ourselves, you know, because we're always going to be there. So it's almost like easy to be critical for us, you know, mm-hmm. our, ourselves. Do you have any thoughts? I mean, it's just odd, but I guess it's also that that protective mechanism. You know, if I treat myself badly, um, I'm kind of repeating those messages I've heard, or I've uh, you know I've internalised that I'm I'm bad. Or we, yeah, we, as you say, we all kind of do that sometimes. I think it's also like quite often culturally, those things are seen as that that's the way you have to be. Is that you have to you're not allowed to sort of celebrate your successes too much because otherwise you're a narcissist or you know your ego is too inflated and actually it's really good to celebrate things and a really good way of motivating myself is to go god I did really well there that's great because oh I want to do that again or you know um we tend to think like we have to pick out all of the negative moments and that's that old brain stuff I guess that's that threat system going oh we've got to keep an eye out for everything because otherwise you know something bad is going to happen so the old brain is looking for those things so it becomes highly critical and often that's the internalised voice that, that that tells us, you know, we're no good or, oh, you're going to, you, you know, you're going to flunk this presentation. You're going to be awful. Like everyone's going to laugh at you. Um, that stuff can then really get in the way. Um, but we do it because it can also feel like motivating somehow. Like, oh, gosh, you, you never you, you never revise enough of your exams. You're going to fail them. You've got to you've got to work harder if you want to get anywhere. Yes, to a degree, some of that a little bit of stress can really help us sometimes. But if you're saying those things to yourself all of the time, you're telling yourself you're never good enough, you're never going to be good enough. And actually, it, it's not motivating in the end. It's not helpful to kind of always put ourselves under that level of pressure. Mm, okay. Yeah, that does make make a lot of sense. Um, and just do you find, uh, do you work in a multidisciplinary team? I mean, uh, do you work with other practitioners with patients like a dietitian or, or anything like that I don't I mean I work in private practice so um it's just me um okay. all the time but what I do I do tend to sort of tell clients to maybe go and ex- to go to other places to to get help in different ways so for example it can be really useful to see someone who 
Um, so you can go to, say, an osteopath and they can do some really good diaphragmatic um, massage, which can help release things. And so I might recommend that or going to yoga classes or where they understand trauma. Um, finding those links is something that I'm, I'm working on at the moment, kind of building some of those links because, it, you know, it's even diet is so important, you know, stress mm. um, and trauma can really lead to, to problems like IBS, stomach problems, digestive issues. So kind of understanding that and going to places with that is really helpful. Um, or even, you know, to see your GP can be really helpful, get some blood tests just to check that there's nothing else going on. So working alongside people, I think, is really important. But perhaps that's something that we struggle with, not just only in private practice, but I think even if you work in healthcare settings, because often we're kind of quite... Um, rigid in the way that we see things or who we work with or how we work and I think we need to be more open to kind of having a more holistic practice because those sorts of things working together are much more useful than kind of working in silos Mm. yeah I mean that's exactly the reason I asked the question is because you know sometimes you know someone is just seeing a psychologist but they don't realize actually there's maybe more things to this you know like as you mentioned you know the dietitian you know, maybe a biokineticist, the osteopath. And so there's mm. this, you know, it's a funny thing because, because, you know, as humans and as professionals, we, we almost, uh, sports people get this right. But like we, we just go mm. through life without needing any help around us. But, you know, the sports, you know, like stars normally have like a nutritionist, they have a psychologist, they have, you know, everyone mm. taking care of them. Um, but for us, we just kind of go through life and just assume everything is going to be perfect. Yeah, absolutely. It, it would be much better if we were working more closely together. Hmm. Um, and you mentioned quite a few resources, uh, you know, like before, but is there any other books or resources or tools that you normally point your clients to or, you know, even someone that wanted to work with you, but they're not quite ready right now? Um, anything else? Um, there's some really good um, compassion focused therapy workbooks things you can get I think online so Paul Gilbert he writes about um, being compassionate a lot and he's quite accessible and he's there's a workbook that he has available for clients and there's another one um, called Experiencing Passion Focus Therapy from the Inside Out um, that is a book that that is used by both therapists and clients it's got lots of um, exercises that you can do so you can to help you kind of understand compassion understand those you know three systems that I was talking about earlier um, and how we can kind of learn to be a bit more compassionate to ourselves, learn to let that in a little bit more. Um, things that I would recommend to, I guess, well, to clients, I would talk, I've, I've given that book, Body Keeps the Score, to clients to read before, because that can be really helpful when they're ready to read that sort of thing. Um, there's also a book, uh, a schema therapy book, which schema says about sort of thinking about um how we kind of interact, so the kinds of ways that we talk about things and think about things in in relation to others. Um, and there's a book called Reinventing Your Life. Um, so that's something that can be really useful for clients in terms of thinking about the different kind of traps we kind of end up in and how we might change those messages. So, for example, we have within schema therapy, kind of think about it like scripts. We have scripts for life. So if you go into a restaurant, you know the script is usually someone comes over, takes you to your seat, gives you a menu, and you tell them what you want, and they bring you the food. And then we know that is a shorthand. Okay, this is what happens. I've got that script in my head already, so I know how to to act in this situation. Um, we develop scripts in our life about all sorts of things. So 
you know, when we talked about sort of attachment problems before, we have certain scripts of like people are generally going to leave me, might be their script. So, you know, when people are angry with me, it means they're about to abandon me. That's the script they might hold, sort of simplifying it. So that this might give you other ways to understand, become conscious of what the script is I'm holding and kind of change that script for yourself a little bit. How can I maybe think about that differently? How, what other scripts could I hold? Which other ways of understanding experience are there? So that we can um, reimagine how we want to kind of live in those situations. Mm, I like that, actually, the, the script idea. Because, uh, you know, when you, when you were saying that, I was thinking about what you said earlier about intergenerational trauma. Because, you know, almost like in our, in our lives, in our families, we almost sometimes have the script already. Mm-hmm. It's written for you and you have to just yeah. the script, uh, whether you realize what that script is or not. Sometimes, you know, and yeah. uh, it's nice to be able to almost like blank canvas. Okay, how, what would you yeah. like your script to be? Uh, yeah. Which is actually quite cool. Yeah. yeah. And I guess that's also the power of like things like narrative therapy, where we're talking about you know, changing our stories or rewriting mm. stories or writing stories in a way that where we're more compassionate to ourselves in those and writing the story of our future. How do we want things to look? Mm. You know, we, we do absolutely have power over some of those things. And that's a really nice way to do that sometimes is think about like these are stories and stories that can change. Mm. We had a therapist out of uh, London that recently spoke to us about that, and it was absolutely fascinating, mm. um, you know, around, you know, how do you change that narrative? Because, uh, mm. yeah, we do get stuck here. Eh? I mean, like, you know, uh, and stuck or, you know, sometimes it's just what we take for granted, mm. you know, in terms of what we, sh- what we should and can mm. do. Um, do you have to start wrapping up? But uh, I also like to ask this question, which is, um, are there any ethical considerations that you have um, or, or that you should consider when working with clients around shame? And, you know, you cover, we covered some of that, obviously, yeah. earlier around the containment and stuff like that. But anything else that, that springs to mind? Um, I guess, uh, yeah, if, someone, if you've got someone who maybe dissociates or has high levels of suicidal ideation, that can feel um, quite overwhelming. So I guess thinking about... Um, consent to talk to others and what that might look like or what you might need or what they might need if they've got other supports in place um it's really important to know some of those things particularly if you're working with someone with high suicidality you want to know that they you know for example got a safety plan so things that they they can do they can go to um when they need to or knowing sort of the numbers to call even for when they're in if they're hit crisis mode you know, where they can go with that because as a therapist you're not a crisis service you can't be there for someone all of the time and particularly in private practice it can feel very lonely because it's just you often um as opposed to you know if you're working in a in a healthcare setting where you've got other places that people can go um so I guess thinking about those things asking those questions about people's risk levels from the beginning thinking about things around dissociation or how they how they experience the world really important or if they are hearing voices or if they are on medication and then knowing some of those things is really important if you're going to be dealing with some quite, quite traumatic stuff and if there are high levels of shame because that's also a time when people can can also disconnect from therapy because it can feel too overwhelming so you want to take it really gently at first and just build up that connection and not necessarily deal with all of that deep stuff too soon because it might feel too much for a planet so I guess it's just kind of softly softly going there and I guess ethically it doesn't mean you can't work with somebody if they're in high levels of 
of suicidality but I know some therapists find that too much so you know it's really important to take those things to supervision to speak to somebody else about these things and how you might work with that. Mm, yeah thanks for mentioning that um, and yeah that's the reason I, I, I ask it as well is because I think there's always the ethical considerations sometimes depending on the area of interest that you, or you know the type of clients that you're dealing with or the you know the you know what the, the topic that we're talking about um, I love this conversation. It was absolutely fascinating and, and, and hearing you speak. And, you know, I think some of the things we went through, you know, a bit more deeper than we probably, you know, saw in terms of the notes, but yeah, I loved it. And, um, uh, you know, thanks so much for being on the show and sharing your, your knowledge and wisdom with us. You're welcome. It's been really enjoyable speaking with you about that. Hey everyone. Thanks for listening. As always, stay tuned and we'll speak to you in the next episode. Yeah.